My name is Steven Snyder. And my name is Tina Rasmussen. We uh, received word this week from the Sayadaw that um, when we started the book, the Sayadaw had, had expressed uh, his support for us sharing our experience of the practice and doing the book and in doing these kinds of presentations. And in the course, I guess, of the book being done and whatever else, he decided this week to tell us that we were uh, authorized to teach in the Pollock um, method for the, the, the Samatha, which is what we know. We've been officially authorized now, so that was a new development just as of yesterday. Yeah. So that's exciting. So just as a reminder, um, we are not um, scholars or historians. We're yogis who are offering our own experience as we learned it from Pawak Saidav, really focusing on the jhana practice, which is focus on one object to the exclusion of everything else and um, all of the things that cultivate, such as the ability to turn away from our story and from the hindrances, which is very useful with this and, and many other practices as well. So tonight, I'll be talking about a few things. First of all, what are, what are actions that support the practice? We've really tried to lay out the whole territory of the practice, and there are a few things that we've referred to in many of the other talks, but we haven't really gone specifically into them and how they can be supportive of the practice overall. So I'll share some, some of our thoughts about those. And then explain the jhana masteries. We've referred to the jhana masteries quite a few times, and this is something that in the tradition of Pawak Sayadaw, as well as in the Vasudhimaga and maybe other places, are referred to. And it's really an important part of the practice with him. And I don't know that in other jhana practices they even use the masteries. I'm not sure. But we wanted to really elaborate on what they are and how that becomes part of the practice and why. And then lastly, I'll touch on psychic powers, which when we first were having a few people read the book, we didn't have that in there. And one of our um, people who gave us feedback said, you know, you should really talk about that because people may think that that's required or needed for this practice, and, and I think you really should elaborate a little bit. So I'll be sharing some of our thoughts on how that fits in, if it fits in. So the four actions that support practice are silence, breathing, uh, timing of meditation, and resolves. We've talked about all the rest of them, but these are the four that we haven't really talked about in much depth. The first of those, then, is silence. And in thinking about silence, there's really three, three different kinds of silence that are important in the practice. And the first of these is environmental. So here, really, the focus is on your surroundings. And um, whether this is a retreat or whether it's in in your home daily practice, really attending to the environment. Are you in in an environment that is relatively quiet and without distractions. So clearly that's, that's optimal and you want to set yourself up to be in a situation like that. So if you're meditating every day at home, it's really helpful to find a place where people aren't going to be, you know, your kids aren't walking by and you aren't going to be hearing radios going and things like that. And that is a great support of the practice. And at the same time, I would say that work with what you have. We're very spoiled, I think, as Western practitioners, and I know some of you have practiced in Asia and other places, and I've heard stories like at the Pawak Monastery 
where people will be meditating in the meditation hall. And when they come through to clean, the cleaning people are chattering back and forth to each other and smoking. So this is all happening as they're sitting in the meditation hall, you know. So we have we may have a standard that other others don't necessarily have of what's required for an effective environment for meditation. So just to keep that in mind, that work with what you have because whatever you have, that can be incorporated into the practice too. And it doesn't have to be pristinely silent for you to have a, a, the ability to have a good sitting or a good you know meditation experience. The second kind then is external. What I mean by external silence is, is not talking. And this is fairly easy to do in daily practice because, you know, if you're sitting for an hour or something, you're, you're clearly not going to um, have that as a, as a temptation, most likely. But on retreats, it does become a temptation. Like on the retreat we were at, there wasn't as much attention and, and container as what we might have at somewhere like, say, the forest refuge. And people started talking. And, you know, we were really surprised because of what happens to one's practice by talking. And we could, as we went deeper and deeper into the practice, we could see that even if we just talked for five minutes, so much concentration was burned off just in that five minutes of talking that it might take two or three hours or half a day to regain the concentration that got burned off. And there's a tendency with any talking, even if you're in your interview with your teacher, that's a little better because really the whole conversation is about practice. But um, there's a tendency for talking to then stir up the mind stream again and for the papancha, you know, the mental proliferation effect to kick in and now all of a sudden you're thinking about other things and it's, it's kind of like taking a big rock and throwing it into a still pond. It, it will calm down, but it's going to ripple out for a while. So um, on retreat, it's really important, especially with this practice, I think maybe even more so than with the, the Vipassana, to really hold that samadhi bubble in, keep it contained and don't blow off the steam. And even if you have a yogi job, to um, really minimize the amount of talking that's, that you're doing and also to give others that gift as well. And then the last kind of silence is internal. And this is really the most important kind, really paying, attending to what's happening with the self-talk. And that's, you know, this is a big part of the practice, obviously, is what to do with that and how we meet it. The internal stories, the sort of having thoughts come up and then following them, the self-judgment about the practice, the wondering what other people are doing or how it's going, how it's going for myself, am I getting... Am I, are the jhana factors arising? All these things can turn into a lot of self-talk. And even if it's about the practice, it's still taking... That is not actually doing the practice, even if it's practice-related. You know, what we've found is that people can spend a lot of time... You know, maybe they're actually having a great sitting or, you know, they're a few days into a retreat or something and maybe they're starting to feel the settling and the jhana factors and now they're sitting there trying to analyze whether or not the jhana factors are arising. Well, that's not actually doing the practice, even though it's related, you know. So there can be a temptation, I think, to start thinking about practice-related things that actually is just as unhelpful almost as going into a full-blown hindrance attack. So the internal silence is really 
to be cultivated and some helpful ways of thinking about this. One that I like is to really think about it as renouncing, as part of the renunciation that's so important in the Theravadan path. And just to think about renouncing thinking, renouncing self-talk, renouncing external talk. And this is one of the renunciations that we make when we do the practice, and especially on retreat. This is part of my renunciation. And so there's a certain kind of nobility, I think, that comes with that, that view of it. Another way is to really incorporate compassion into the attempts to turn away from the self-talk. So rather than when there's an awareness that the self-talk or any of these is happening, rather than that overlaying that with more judgment, to just have compassion that it's happening and come back to the object rather than elaborating on it further. In the daily practice, I think one of the real beauties of this practice is the relief from the incessant self-talk that we have all day long as we're driving around, as we're going to the grocery stores, we're in, tra- you know, in traffic, as we're with other people, to really savor that time, however much time you spend in your daily practice, as a time to get some relief from the self-talk. I mean, this is another way of looking at it as, wow, this is so beautiful to have this time to be silent and to really deeply, deeply take that in during your meditation time rather than allowing the overlay of the hackneckness of our everyday lives to come into that time to really see it as an opportunity to get some relief. At some point in the practice, and, and this could even be daily in the daily practice, We've talked about this idea or this feeling, really, of the love affair with the Anapana spot and with the silence. This becomes another way of renouncing the self-talk, is that feeling of really the beauty and the love affair with the breath, with the Anapana spot. There's a sweetness that can be felt, and you don't have to be sitting for a long time to start feeling that. This is the desire that the Buddha talked about that's wholesome, to really feel the beauty of the practice. And so I'd encourage you, if that's something that's present for you, to really um, let yourself have that love affair with the silence and with the anapana spot and the breathing because it can be so sweet. And that can cultivate all all of these things being more possible. At some point in the practice, the, the t- self-talk does subside. We both found that at this point, there really wasn't much self-talk going on at all. There, there is a place in the mind stream where, and really this would mainly happen, I think, on retreat for most people, the settling becomes so deep that there is a point at which thought isn't even necessary anymore. There's an impulse to do things. So when action is needed, going to the bathroom or eating or getting up from a meditation or going to sleep or whatever, there's an impulse that can arise that can lead to action and thought isn't actually necessary. And it's really quite a relief to know that we don't have to think to function. So I just hold that out there for you, maybe you've experienced this, but if you haven't, that there, it is possible to be able to function and move around and to have thought play no part in that 
and to be just fine. It's kind of exciting, actually. So that's silence. Those are some different things about really cultivating that silence internally and externally. The next thing I'd like to talk about is breathing. So as this practice goes on, the breathing gets more and more subtle, and especially on a long retreat, as that stillness really settles in. This is where, you know, samatha being serenity really becomes obvious when you're doing a longer period of practice, um, that the breathing becomes very, very subtle. There has been some debate, does the breath actually stop at some point in this practice, or right around when you're getting into fourth jhana and beyond that point? We have been assured by the Sayadaw that it's, and he even gave us a reference to one of the suttas, that it, according to Buddhist scripture, it does stop. But what I would say is don't worry about it. Does it stop? Doesn't, doesn't it stop? If you start experiencing that feeling that you wonder if you are actually breathing or not, it's natural to go through a period where fear will come up in the body. Just to know that that's natural, that there's a way where there will be a period, most likely, where the body will start to sort of get nervous about this and to know that this is natural and you are actually fine. You know, our perception was that we, we never stopped breathing, we never passed out, we never, none of those things ever happened. And so just to trust that this is a natural process and this is part of the stilling. And there may be a tendency at sometimes to, to gulp, you know, to when that happens to sort of take a gulp of air and there, you know, if it happens, it happens. Don't worry about it. But I would, the encouragement is really to just trust that the breathing, the subtlety of the breathing is natural and that there's nothing unhealthy about it. You don't need to be worried about dying or, you know, any of those other things happening. The next aspect of actions that support practice is meditation timing. And we've, we talked about this some last month. In a daily practice, 30 to 60 minutes is great. If you can do that every day, that's really fine. And you don't need to be trying to stretch it out more unless that's, that's something you want to do. If you can sit two times a day, that's wonderful. If you want to break up the time and do it two different, you know, morning and evening, really whatever works for you, we really like to encourage people to follow their, to, to trust their own process and to do what they're attracted to. So in daily practice, do what feels right, and if that changes, go with, go with where your energy is because you want the practice to really feel fresh and not, you know, not like drudgery. But I'll, I'll also say that, like for myself, I made a real commitment to myself about, I guess it's been about 15 years ago now, to meditate every single day. And there is something about having that commitment and not, when I get up in the morning, I don't wonder if I'm going to meditate. I know I'm going to meditate, and I never, ever miss a day, ever. And if I can't do it right when I get up because I'm getting up at 3 a.m. and I have to, you know, do something, then I'll do it as soon as I can after that. There's a way where that kind of commitment, that, that many, small drops many times, you know, just having that consistency of practice over years and years of doing it every day, whether you feel like it or not, whether you want to or not, whether you have a good sitting or not, there is something that really is very wholesome about 
doing it just like you're flossing your teeth. You know it's good for you. You know, and so there's there's a way that uh, that level of commitment becomes a real a cultivation of the faith that eliminates doubt because you can see that over long periods of time it's been worthwhile to do. So in terms of daily practice, I think that it's worth considering if you're not doing that already. In terms of retreat practice then, meditation timing, it really does help to start increasing the time that you're sitting as you're leading up to a retreat so that when you get to the retreat, you're already kind of primed to start with whatever your daily practice is and then maybe double that, sit two times a day. And then, you know, as it gets closer, keep increasing the time until you're at whatever your maximum is so that when you get into the retreat, you already have a really solid base and there's a sense of of the stability beforehand. That can be really helpful doing several periods a day. And then once you're on retreat, there is really a benefit to extending the time. Granted, with the Anapanasati, as it's taught here, you are staying with that object all the time. You're never leaving it, no matter what you're doing, whether you're eating, whether you're going to the bathroom, whether you're sitting on a cushion, you're always on the spot. But I will say that when you're moving around, it is not the same quality of meditation as when you're sitting. Even if you're very deep, there is a benefit to just sitting longer. And we found that you can really see when they're starting, that coherence of the mind stream is starting, and the long periods of unbroken time really do make a difference with that. I would really encourage you to to challenge yourself to go beyond what you think you can do and just see what happens. Because what we found is that when we did that consistently, it really did make a difference. The last action, then, that supports the practice is the use of resolves. And this is something I hadn't really heard of very much until I started doing jhana practice. So I don't know if it's used in other meditation practices or not. A resolve is it's an intention for something in the practice to arise. So there's different kinds of resolves. There's, you can make resolves for the jhana factors, for a particular jhana, for a time duration. We even incorporated, especially Stephen incorporated no self-resolves. So the way you would use this is say that you were on a retreat. Again, mainly the use of resolves would be used when you're doing a more extended practice. If you are starting to settle and feeling like maybe the jhana factors are starting to arise, but maybe there's a particular jhana factor that doesn't really seem to be very strong. Maybe it's PT. So in your, before you actually begin the formal meditation, as you sit down, or even in the middle of a sitting, if, if that seems like the right timing, the, the thought would be something like, may PT arise strongly. So there's just, it's like an internal movement that's inclining the mind stream towards that, whatever that thing is arising. So it's not a mantra, it's not something you repeat, it's not something you're clinging to. You're just really inclining yourself and the mind stream towards that thing arising. And there's a way, the practice can get very subtle so that you can really feel when it's an appropriate time to do that. 
So it, it's, not, it's not sort of something that's trying to create grasping or that you're doing it every five minutes. You're really just doing it and then letting go of that intention. There's also the use of resolves for the jhana, and this becomes really important as you start approaching first jhana. Because first jhana, the first time that first jhana arises, it's going to be probably a little bit of a, a wobbly kind of situation. It's not just going to arise in full force and then you're just in first jhana for three hours. You know, that's, that's probably not how it's going to happen because the access concentration is, it's close. It's, you know, in the neighborhood, but there might be some sort of tipping back and forth in and out of the actual absorption. And so this would be a time, if there's a feeling that the mind stream is cohering and your teacher will be telling you that you're getting close because the nimitta will have merged with the anapana spot and there'll be stability. So there's a lot of other signs that you would look for that first jhana was close. But at some point, it's helpful to just make the, again, make the resolve, may first jhana arise strongly. That's it. So it's, there's a way that we talked a couple talks ago about effort, where there's a real balance between that yin and that yang energy, that the, the active and then the receptive. And so when you're making a resolve, you're really balancing those two. You're making the resolve in sort of a more active, yang-like way, where you're sort of intending something proactively, but then when it's done, you're sitting back and you're just being receptive to the jhana arising because we can't make a jhana arise. We just can't. So if there's too much of that grasping yang energy, it's actually going to get in the way. So this is where the resolves really need to have a balance of those two aspects. And then there's time resolves, and these become really important. I'll get in a minute get to the jhana masteries. These become important because once the absorptions start arising, you want to make sure that you can stay in for the, the allotted time and that also you do come out of the absorption. You know, this is something that becomes important, especially if you're practicing by yourself. You don't want somebody to find, it, find you in there a day later and you're still in the absorption. Not that that's going to happen, but there is, there is a usefulness, let's just say, to having the mastery of the time resolve. So again, here, and you can even practice with the resolves before you even have jhana. So this would be something at home, you can try it. If you feel like you're really pretty concentrated and having a good sitting, you can look at the time and just make a resolve to sit for an hour, for half an hour, and then don't look. Because if you keep looking every five minutes, it's not a resolve. So make the resolve and then just see what time was it when you opened your eyes. And it, it is possible to do this with some precision, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But these are all different kinds of resolves that we can make that really we found to be very helpful, and the Saito does encourage you to use them. Just don't use them sort of obsessively. Use them with a very light touch. The jhana masteries then, there are five jhana masteries. Uh, the first is to, they say advert, but it's really to call your attention to the jhana factors. So he, what this means is to be able to, as you're sitting, really see how many, what jhana factors are present. 
And this would be something that's done, all of these are done in access concentration. When you're in a full jhana absorption, there isn't any thinking going on. So none of these are happening while you're in a jhana. These are in access concentration. So that's the first one, which jhana factors are present. So you get a lot of practice at this as you're leading up to the first jhana, in which all five are present. Then the second one is to enter jhana whenever is, whenever is desired. And this is something that the Sayadaw really requires before you can go on to the next jhana, is that you need to be able to sit down and immediately go into first jhana at will. And so clearly this is not something that happens until you've really had a lot of stability and experience with that jhana. But it is something that becomes very doable. Because what happens is then as you're progressing through the jhanas, Say you're, you know, you're, you're working on fourth jhana, you need to be able to go through first, second, third, and then go into fourth. So if you can't do that at will, it's going to take a long time for you to get up to fourth jhana. The third one is to resolve to stay in the jhana for the determined amount of time. And so this is where the time resolves become important. And it really, it's, I'm not sure how it even works, but it does work. Deepama was somebody, maybe you all have heard these stories, but she could go and they, people would time her. And she was even doing this with a Vipassana practice. She wasn't even doing, I think, she wasn't doing it with the jhanas. But she would say something like two days, eight hours, 13 minutes, and 47 seconds. I mean, it was a really long time on top of it. And they would time her and she'd come out at the exact second. It is amazing and it is possible. Somehow it works. So give yourself the possibility that this can really is something you can do. The fourth one is to then emerge from the jhana at the determined time. So clearly if the time resolves are working, that's going to happen. And then the fifth one is to be able to review the jhana factors. And this becomes really important because as when, when you exit the jhana, then the first thing you want to do is see what jhana factors are present so you know what jhana you were in. And it, this isn't so important when you're sort of working your way through the jhanas progressively, but later practices, and this is very advanced, we didn't do any of this, but there is a, a later development where you might be skipping around from jhanas. And so you want to be able at all times to know where you are. Where are you in these different form, form and formless realms? The last thing then is psychic powers. and. As I mentioned, we were asked to add this because if you look at the Visuddhimagga, if you look at the suttas, there's, there are some things in there that sound like psychic powers. And even in this practice, some of the things that we, are, that we do seem to require that. And what I would say is that the Buddha talked about these being supranormal, not supernatural, not abnormal, not, not psychic. He just called them supranormal which means that they're beyond our normal capacities, which is true about sitting for three hours, too. I mean, I can't sit three hours right now if I wanted to. Well, maybe I could, but it, it would hurt. So these are just supranormal, and when we're in these refined states of mind and we've honed the, the mind stream has been unified in that way, things are possible that aren't possible in everyday awareness. That was how we experienced it. Some of the things that we read about didn't seem possible, and yet when it came time to do them, they were possible. And there are many precedents for this throughout Buddhism. The Buddha, of course, did all kinds of things that were very amazing. 
But even modern practitioners, the Sayadaw, Deepama, there's all kinds of just incredible stories about her having supranormal abilities that are beyond what is every day. Even Mahasi, Sayadaw, they were very interested in, in some of these things and whether they actually were possible. But there are also yogis practicing in Pawak Monastery who are doing these things, people just like us. The, the main manifestation this takes is in what's called the divine eye or the wisdom eye, which is really, I think it's what normally is thought of as the, the third eye. And there's a, there's a capacity that develops when the thinking drops and the mind coheres to perceive things that we can't normally perceive and it's not done with the eyes. It's done with some faculty that we all have. And it does happen in daily life where we know things and we can't explain why. So this is just a focused use of that. It arises as needed. So I think to hold it that way, to realize that if doubt comes up around it, that this is one of the five hindrances, and if you get to that point in the practice and have doubt, to just see it as a hindrance rather than an absolute fact because these practices have been done for 2,500 years and thousands of people have done them and these, these supranormal capacities have arisen as needed and they've been able to do the practice. So I don't think psychic powers as we would normally talk about them are needed. It's just that when the mind coheres, something else is available that may not normally be part of our experience. So, Stephen, you have any um, additional comments to make on any of those topics? I do have a couple of okay. small points, Great. if I may. Um, when you were um, talking about the meditation timing, I just wanted to mention that, at least from my experience, increasing the time in meditation there can be a physical component, meaning it's, it's too painful, one can't stay in meditation. Uh, but very often, the larger block is the mental uh, block. And that is just the idea that there's no way I can sit that long. Uh, I've never done it before, it can't be done. And that's really the place of resistance. I think we even found that too. Yeah. That once you're in those places and you're sort of stretching a little bit, a little bit, it, it just somehow unfolds and can be done like a lot of this practice. So not, not to really be too, too uh, daunted by that, but it's really the flexibility of mind there that really helps with increasing yeah. time. If Deepama could sit for two or three days, I mean, what's three <laughs> hours, you know? I, that's, that's a really big stretch in my mind, three days. But yeah, be, believe, I guess, is, is the yeah, encouragement. Believe perhaps. that it's possible, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you were talking about the resolves, uh, the time resolves on Jhana. And the time resolves, uh, uh, what Tina said is absolutely correct, that they're really structured so that there's a precision. There's really, uh, as she said, they're called the Jhana Masteries, and that's really what the side out requires, is there's a real precision about learning how to use the Jhana and really gain a stability, because as you're doing Jhanas that are further up the, uh, the chain, uh, you are expected to go through the, the preceding ones to get to the one you're working on. And there needs to be a precision about entry and then exiting the jhana. And each time the jhana factors are checked, the jhanas actually have a, a, a kind of a experiential difference. There's a distinction between them mm-hmm. that, that may be perceived. But sometimes it can be so slight that, that it may not be fully known 
what jhana, and also when you're moving sort of quickly, you're doing five or ten minutes per jhana when you're moving up the chain, uh, it's important to do that, to just every time, again, have the precision to check the jhana factors, see what jhana factors are there to confirm that, yes, in fact, this was uh, the second jhana. Tina mentioned that, that it sometimes is used for moving from various jhana to various jhana out of order, and that normally isn't taught. That's normally uh, used for development of supernatural, the real supernatural powers, the ability to walk through walls and dive into the earth and this kind of thing. So that's normally not, uh, not taught, and that's not encouraged in this practice because it's very important to have that precision and that sequencing. Because as the, with each jhana level, initially going into the jhana, the factors only are going to, in effect, survive so long. They begin to, to wane as we're in the jhana. So in the first go, a few times in the jhana, the jhana factors will recede and we will be out of jhana before the time resolve is completed. So part of that is building up, like you said last time, it's building up that muscle at each jhana level to where that you, you can resolve, you can stay in for that precise amount of time and then come out on time so that there does, again, get to be a kind of mastery. Otherwise, there's a way it can get kind of sloppy uh, where you're in one jhana for some period of time, another one longer, another one shorter. There really isn't a way that you have precision in, in moving up the chain as you need to, particularly in the upper jhanas. It's yeah, that's a really good point about the time resolves. You know, we, well, I'll speak for myself. Um, it's not like the first time you sit down to do a time resolve, you're going to make the three hours or the two hours. You know, your concentration is going to wane before you get there. And so that's where, because it's just not strong enough. Right. You know, but the it's important to have the attempt. And at some point, and this is really what's great about, I think, Saidao's, um the way that he teaches this is that he really ensures that you have mastery before going on because what we found is that if there isn't a real stability in one jhana before going on, it just the whole thing just starts unraveling and then you're back at zero again. You know, not quite at zero. Well, not close. at zero, but you know, we have this desire to sort of rush and get to the end point quickly and there's, there's really a sweetness in each step and doing it this way builds a very strong foundation. So that's where the masteries really guarantee that. And so then as one does move on, there's the ability to have confidence that, that, that the foundation that's been laid will remain there. And, and also with each jhana, there is, a, there's, I'm going to say a level of purification. It's not quite right, phrased right, but there's a certain amount of purification that needs to happen with the Anapana mm-hmm. meditation, with access concentration opening up, with access concentration finally with first jhana, and then with each uh, each succeeding jhana, there has to be enough of the right kind of purification of mind in order to really be able to do the shift into the next jhana. And that's mm-hmm. part of what the resolves do too, is they really require the practitioner to stay there long enough to really be immersed in the the meditative energy of that jhana. Really, uh, the masteries the do that, right. yeah. Anyway, that was the only comments I had. Great. What questions do you have? I thought that, yeah. uh, like in the first session, I thought you went into the first jhana and then you were drawn into the other jhanas. I didn't know there was as much you kind of doing stuff. Does that make any well, sense? Well, yeah. We, there's... 
I think it's important to be um, to be really clear. You know, when we first started speaking about this, we wanted to be really clear that it's not like you can just decide I'm going to go and I'm going to go into the first jhana one day. It's very much a balance between having the intention and then the practice doing you. And so it's only when there is mastery that you can actually go into a jhana at will. But there is, see, this is why the results, though, are a little bit of a doing that we didn't talk about, we haven't talked about until now, because it's important not to be doing too much because that erodes the practice. And so we really didn't want to introduce that too early. So if you're hearing... Because as Tina said, there is a way that, that the, the resolve is sort of set and released. And, and over time, it gets to where there's a kind of a, the, the energetic intention of the resolve is felt, and the mm-hmm. words aren't even formed. It's just a kind mm-hmm. of a knowing, and mm-hmm. then that's, that's on. And, and in fact, your question of being drawn, it, it does kind of work that way between jhanas. Once the purification mm-hmm. is complete, once the masteries are there, there is a certain way that there starts to be a movement towards the next jhana. So that is that is correct, but it's sort of it's yeah yeah it's, yeah. That's a really good point. That the what happens like as one spends more and more time in the first jhana, the two jhana factors that drop off start feeling gross because the mind's cohering. So you're not needing to apply and sustain your attention because basically you're on your object all the time. It's it's almost locked in there if you put just a little effort. So so those start feeling like, why am I doing so much? And they just naturally start waning. And then in second jhana, the PT, which is much more sort of bodily felt at some point when you've been doing second jhana for a long time, that starts feeling really gross and unrefined, and then that starts dropping. So there is a way that there's a natural movement to the next jhana, but I don't know that a full absorption would arise. Access concentration might arise without doing anything, but um, I think the results are helpful for that full absorption to really arise. That, there's a little difference there, I think. It's almost like awareness is a little part of the package, so your awareness is part of the... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the... It, it's a big, actually a big component of the practice. Yeah. It's, it's, sort of, it's all in the field of awareness, but you know, it's sort of like which, you know, if you're cooking in your kitchen, which utensil you grab when you're cooking is sort of like what you need for that particular moment. And then you put it down, you don't think about it again. It's kind of like that. But it's, yeah. it's I mean, yeah. what we're, of course, talking about, and it sounds like we have this huge tool belt that we're constantly reaching into. And it's, it's not really like that exactly. But it is, all these things are pieces that are part of it. But it becomes very, very effortless as you're doing it. It seems very natural. It seems very, very clunky now that we talk about it or cumbersome, but it really is, you know, as you're using it at the right time, it's very skillful, and then you don't think about it and use it. Yeah. This is actually a great question because <laughs> it's the one topic of this entire practice that we were the most hesitant about writing about and the most hesitant <laughs> about speaking about. Um, but, but I, will, I we, will do so. Oh, good, good. We, uh, we drew short straws to see yeah. who was going to respond to this question. Well, so could you restate the question? I will. I'll restate the question. That, that there was a question about the, the checking of the jhana factors in what's called the heart base. Yeah. Better known as the Bawanga. Basically, I'll tell you what we understand about it and I'll tell you the way it actually seems. 
and we won't entertain questions about why it works. Uh, in this practice, the, there is a, a location, and it's in the heart region that's called the Bawanga. And you can read about the Bawanga, I think it's in the uh, Abitama, there's uh, some discussion of it. It's a very complicated topic for anyone who has looked at it. And I'm going to say just basically what it is, is as this practice is developing, as one, when one uh, gains access to first jhana and there's enough stability, the teacher will talk with them about this and say you need to check the jhana factors. And by checking the jhana factors is one of the masteries, you check them in the bawanga. And this is one of the developments of one of the psychic powers that there's a development of what's called the wisdom eye. And there's a way that coming out of first jhana after one has a minimum of stability, I mean, one isn't ready to go to second jhana, but one is pretty well stable in first jhana, there is an ability to look from the wisdom eye, which is normally above the normal eyes, there's a way somehow that one can look into the heart base, into the bawanga, and it's as though there are five gems being held uh, in a hand. There's not really a hand, there's not really five gems, but metaphorically. And one knows what each of them is. Each of them is a jhana factor. And so, for example, one can see in a very brief look that all five jhana factors are present. And that confirms to the student that, yes, in fact, this was uh, first jhana. And then in subsequent jhanas, one would look and there would be the, for example, Vitaka and Vichara would be gone. And so, and the other three would be there, which would be a way that one confirms this was second jhana. So, uh, I don't actually know technically whether one, if one was very developed in access concentration, if one could see this. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that as you get jhana and as you are at least are sort of halfway through your progression of that jhana, this ability develops. Mm -hmm. There's some explanation. I think it's in knowing and seeing also. There's a lot more in there about Bawanga and um, Venerable Pak's Hideout's book, if you're interested. But there's, it, it's, I think it's something that after one completes his Vipassana and there's been the whole analysis of mentality and materiality and so on, that it's related in some way to that. But there's there's, it's the mind door, and so there's some way that um, those factors are a reflection of what's present in the mind door. So if you look at these as little packets of mentality of what's going on in the mental state, that's what you're actually looking at. But, you know, again, we don't know how it works, we don't know why, we don't know how it relates to the text. We just know that when the time came, which is when it was introduced to us, was, was towards, you know, after the first jhana had arisen. So we don't really know about using it in, in, in access concentration. You don't really need to look. You well, can like, tell whether what jhana factors are present. So well, The other factor, too, is uh, we were encouraged not to check the bawanga often because it yeah. does blow off yeah. um, concentration energy. So one is expected to really look in a snap. It's like a, a second. Think about if you look down at a bowl, you could look in one second and see if there's an orange, an apple, and a banana in there. It's kind of like that. It works somehow. There is a section in our book on it. It's not a large section. 
Anyway, but there is a little bit in there. We've, we've written about it enough. There is more that can be said about it, but it's really, it's too much information. Yeah, you don't need to know more than that to do the practice, and it only becomes really relevant after first jhana has arisen. That's the point at which checking the bawang, you need to do it for the jhana masteries. So it becomes something you must do. So for the for the resolve to sit, I mean, well, I guess it wasn't one of the formal resolves, but when you're talking about making the commitment to yourself to sit daily, no matter what, uh-huh. um, you know, there, there there are a lot of ways to comply with that. But you know, I'm, I'm kind of a structured type, so I like to sit in the morning uh-huh. and at a certain time, and I'm not really that open unless I'm in a formal situation just sitting in the evening. My life isn't just isn't set up so I can do that easily. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, so, so, I mean, this is a, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask this, but you know, you go out to a party, you come home at one or two at night, are you really going to get up at five in the morning and sit? I mean, that's sort of the but I, but I, we're, we're not. We're not. All right, I mean, you, six, you can if you six, want. Six, seven, whatever. But I mean, you know, that's that, that's sort of a cartoon version of the question. I mean, there are circumstances that arise that no matter what really becomes almost masochistic, you know, to the ordinary person at least, mm-hmm. like to my wife. <laughs> uh, but you know, so I think you get where I'm, what I'm getting at. But uh, but you know, but how? So kind of, no matter what means what. <laughs> well, I mean, it has to be something that you feel you want to do. To do anything that feels forced isn't isn't what we would be recommending. But I can say that even when I've had a lot going on and a very busy schedule, even to sit for a short amount of time, I don't know, 20 minutes or half an hour or something. I don't sit the same amount of time every day. Most days, if I could, I would sit longer. It's hard to believe there isn't 20 minutes in an entire day. At lunch, in your office, in your cubicle. I used to go in the bathroom sometimes if I was in a place where there wasn't any privacy. It really has to be, I think, something that feels that you feel you want to do. To do it as a, a must-do and as a tight, contracted thing isn't really the intention. Yeah. Okay, so it's a matter of exercising some amount of creativity and not stuffing yourself into a structure that might not fit sure. every time. Yeah, well, I used to commute on BART in the city. I had to be there to work at 8, and I lived in Moraga, and it was like an hour and a half long commute. And some days I would do it while I was sitting on BART. Well, it's also, yeah. what I found with, with committing to a daily practice is at first it was very, uh, it was more challenging, and I had a lot of resistance and a lot of reasons why it wasn't a good idea and there came a point when I realized that the commitment was stronger than the resistance. The resistance just stopped. And, and I've told people, even if, you, even if you sit for five minutes or ten minutes, to just make sure that day you sit at some, you meditate at some point, there's a kind of stability and a kind of way you're giving yourself a gift 
that really builds on itself. Because what happens to most people that we talk with who don't is that they'll do that, they'll you know, meditate, then they'll miss a day, and then the next time they miss two days, and then three days, and then a week. Uh, and then it's, well, I need only certain conditions before I can meditate properly. So it ends up becoming something they do very rarely. So that, that's sort of the, the flip side of it, if, it's, if one leans too much the other way. I recall hearing the Dalai Lama speaking... Uh, I just watched it on the internet, but I think he was at Harvard several years ago. But he actually said that as busy as he is, head of the uh, Tibetan Buddhists uh, and the uh, Tibetan Sedate, he meditated, he claimed he meditated six hours every morning. And I think some people, meditation substitutes for sleep. They're just as relaxed. And so it's not like taking away. Um, the other thing now, getting back to your uh, topic on mastery, this, this issue sort of came up again at the Paul Hawk Monastery. I was talking to this fellow from Canada and about how noisy it was in the monastery. And, and, uh, and I didn't find out until I talked to Robert that I was actually, they put me in a hospital room. So I couldn't understand why all these monks around me were talking so much and had so many visitors. Um, but I was telling him, my goodness, it's really noisy here. And he said, you know, it is. But for some, uh, some reason, the, the more experienced monks uh, can get into a deep meditation very quickly. Like, well, I think what you call mastery. Um, and they can get into whatever state they want to very quickly. And so they don't need the warm-up that we need. And I'm just wondering uh, whether, as if we could ever master this, that we don't need to meditate as much, that actually we can go into it in a split second, uh, you know, visit the fourth jhana and, and be calm and, and then come out of it, and that would be enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, ultimately, you know, if you look at these practices, especially when you consider that you can be doing... Anapanasati in the way that it's taught here with the Anapanasati as the object continuously, theoretically. There's nowhere you can't do it. There's in any setting, any situation. I mean, talking makes it a little bit harder because there's a lot of mentalization going on. But other than when you're talking, you can do it all the time. So there isn't any particular condition that's required. And same thing even if you're doing Vipassana. Same thing. You know, you can be observing what's arising, what's in your awareness all the time. So potentially that's where the practice can go. So the idea that it's some little tiny box of when we're sitting in a certain position really is very limiting. Yeah. Does your um, purification, like if you're just doing little bits at a time, are you really doing anything? And is it like dieting, like you purify, then you sully, then you purify, then you, you know, is there like a, a, a gaining thing by meditating more? Or do you, you have to live your life good too? No, of course you do, but I don't, I don't know. Do you know what I'm sort of saying about the time thing and the purification? Okay. Yeah, the, um, while it certainly is true, the more that you're meditating with this kind of a concentration practice, the more there is purification. There's also a purification of mind that's going on just by being with the Anapana spot, by staying focused. There's something that's purifying about that. And part of this practice is, as we've talked about before, there is a way that meeting the, the hindrances or defilements that are getting in the way 
is also a purifying. There's a way that, that if you're with the Anapana spot and there's, for example, you're driving and there's a situation that a huge amount of anger comes up, there's a way that, that clearly we're probably off the Anapana spot at that point and we're really sort of uh, engrossed in our anger. There's a way that if we can come back to just being present with that, to just not, not get into judgment and thinking and analysis and blaming and just be, be with that anger as it is, there's a way that that becomes purifying because there's a neutrality that we start developing. And then those, those strong emotions such as anger or the other... Uh, uh, various defilements and hindrances really start lessening. And so that's a way that in life, and that's a way that with uh, daily practice even, this practice can start purifying. And of course, your point is correct too, that with the development of wholesomeness uh, and the turning away from unwholesomeness, that yes, that also is a purifying. Yeah, so I mean, even in the anger example, it, there's the being present with, and then there's also turning away. Oh, that isn't worth putting my attention on. And so every time we do that and we, we just turn away from something that's really, it doesn't need our thinking and attention and obsessing and running over it again and again and all those things, you know, that's where the skillful means comes in. There are times when things need our attention. There's times when actually being present for something can help dissipate it. And then there's other times when turning away is the most skillful thing we could do. And that's really with, the, um, with this practice, with concentration, that's what we're cultivating in particular, is really a disinterest in our story. So every time we do that and we realize, oh, I feel better, I didn't need to obsess about that, it was that was easy or whatever whatever comes as a result of doing that over and over and over again all of those are building that's the muscle those are all building wholesome capacities that we have and then when something needs our attention we attend to it but a lot of times we spend a, a lot of mental energy and other a lot of our mind stream is is absorbed in things that really aren't necessary so yeah, you know, the more we can do it throughout the day, all of that, in some ways doing it in a daily situation, who knows if it's more purifying, I don't know. There's, there's different kinds of purification that happen in a long intensive retreat versus daily life, but they're both really valuable. Yeah. Why don't we take a short break before we meditate? Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight and your shoulder blades relaxed down your back towards the floor. And your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and the upper lip, the Anapana spot. Your object is to know the sensation of the movement of breath as it passes the Anapana spot on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath at the Anapana spot, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The side house suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single in-breath and one out-breath is one. Once awareness begins collecting, you can drop the counting if you like. 
Another method to concentrate awareness is to notice the length of the breath, long or short. This is not an evaluation of the mind, but an aware knowing. It is also not noting, as is, as in associating a word to the knowing. Simply upon the in-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. On the out-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. As with counting, this can be dropped once concentration develops. So how was that for everyone? Any comments or questions? When I'm breathing, I much more notice my in-breath than my out-breath. I almost can't get a sensation of out-breath on that spot. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Or no, is that common or... What do you think of it? Where do you notice it the most? I notice it right here. Uh-huh. Both in and out, same place? Well, I can't say as I can really get a sensation. I know I'm breathing out, but, mm-hmm. but I can't feel that right there. Mm-hmm. But I can feel it coming in. When I, when I breathe out, it more diffuses, kind of. Mm-hmm. It's probably a little more subtle on the way out. But one, in that instance, probably best thing is just to start with noticing the in, whatever's predominant, and then just trying to stay in the space. You know, it's like the example we've given about being a toll taker on one of the bridges here. No cars are passing, you still stay in your booth uh, waiting for the car to pass. So it's still having the attention on the, on the spot. The other thing is that we've noticed for ourselves that the more we do the practice, the more um, awareness there is of the subtle, the subtler um, sensation. There is a um, either through daily practice and, and the really settling in, or a retreat. There does tend to be a an increasing level of awareness as one does it more. So that might be something that that may happen over time for you. I don't know. Is anyone using either the counting or the long short? No. Long short when I um, sometimes I get a little forced, you know, like I'm just really breathing, mm-hmm. and and then I'll sort of like go, sort of go back into that, mm-hmm. um, knowing it's long or short because it seems like I can allow it to be more natural. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly to concentrate. 
Yeah, it's another way. I mean, this would be to your question about the sensation. If you aren't as aware of the sensation at the Anapana spot, uh, you could at least be aware of whether the breath was long or short. These are, again, just devices to give us more for our awareness to focus on. I always do a lot better here. I kind of give you guys credit, like you create a vibration or something. I mean, it is very peaceful and nice here, but it's not too bad in my place. And, um, you know, thank you. I mean, at least, you know, it's like, I know I can do this because I did it at class, you know. Mm -hmm. And I've had an experience um, lately, maybe this is that hindrance thing you talked about, where I'm like, the counting is like, I'm counting because I'm wrestling a snake, you know? It's like, come on, you can make it to eight breaths you know, without the mind going out there. But tonight I didn't do that at all, and sometimes I don't have to do it at all. So they're simple little suggestions, but invaluable. Yeah, you know, again, they're, they're all just there as options to be used if they're helpful, to not be used if they're, you know, more than, more than what's necessary. Yeah. And, and it's really, Marsha, what you're saying is completely true. It's that showing up again and again. And sometimes it is wrestling the snake, and sometimes it's sitting quietly. And that's the nature of the practice, that we just keep showing up. And as Tina says, there's a way we start turning away that we just sometimes don't even realize. We're just, we're just not quite buying into the, the story of, I'm, I'm not a good meditator, this is too hard, um, everybody else can do it but me. You know, all these kinds of things that are common. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the real advantages to to practicing consistently is, I mean, it's not like we have perfect sittings every day either, even though we've been doing this a really long time, as, you know, many of you have. And um, there's just something about um, staying with it anyway, because that's the nature of life. Everything changes, you know, it's, and, and just accepting that as just the nature of things. There's something about that over time that you can really see that it's true and, and there's a peace with it. Yeah, and sometimes sitting in groups, there is, there is a group mind and that's one of the reasons people like to go on retreat is that there is a benefit of being with others and who knows what that is, but certainly a lot of people notice it. Yeah. There, there was a school of thought also that even if we are having the most uh, disastrous meditation, somewhere something is really working. It's just outside of our frame of reference or our perception. So by, by showing up, that's still happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we are concluding for this wind down. Yeah, thank you all very much for being here. It's really wonderful to spend the evening with you all. Are we going to talk about that? Yeah, we actually um, are thinking that we may outline some of the practices after the Samatha. Um, Not that we have, we've just done the very beginning portion of that, but so that you all can see the the entire path of practice as taught by Venerable Pak Sayadaw, because it is nothing like the Vipassana that we've learned. It's completely different. So... Um, that the, the comma, would, I'm assuming, would fit more with the dependent origin. Yes, that's exactly what yeah. right. So, um, you know, we'd be happy to talk about that some and, and probably will actually walk, walk you through that next time so you can really see the whole path from start to finish, whereas we've been really focusing just mainly on the first part. 
And we've, we've also been thinking about possibly offering something at some point on the four elements. So I don't have any of you heard of the four elements meditation? It's the last chapter in our book also. It's a specific meditation practice. Uh, it's yeah. It's supposed to be the beginning of your it's, it's, it's the end of the, the samatha as he teaches it and the beginning of the Vipassana. Right. There's, a, there's a transition point where it goes from one to the other. Um, and, and it can be done as a standalone practice from zero. So um, it's kind of interesting because each of us did that differently. I did it at the end in the sequence that is normally taught, and then Stephen did it at the beginning, mm-hmm. just coming in straight off of the beginning of the retreat. Off so. the street. Off the street, yes. yeah. Yeah, and I, mean, I did a, the four elements, and then, and then the, the progression there, at least for me, was that, and then 32 mm-hmm. body parts, skeleton, and starting White Casina, and then the side out switched me back to Anapanasati. Yeah, so sometimes he does start people with four elements <clears throat> directly. So it's, it is a practice that can be done without um, doing the jhana practice first. And, and, so, and the point is it can be used as an access to jhana. So it can be done with white casino into the jhana, the first jhana. Right, it can so also be... Or into vipassana. Right. Yeah. And so, I did it. I just had uh, been in some bad accidents. I had some body stuff and was having too much uh, discomfort. So I started there and worked through that, those issues with four elements and then did the others and then switched over. Uh, I actually asked him about it and we kind of mutually decided it might be a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was one of the functions of a good meditation teacher is to pick the meditation object that you should be working on. Mm-hmm. The first day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the house generally starts everybody off on Anapanasati to see uh, how people do, but yeah. Um, there anyway, are, so we're thinking yeah. about doing the one day, maybe next year. On, maybe next year, if there's interest. if there's interest in yeah. it, because yeah. it's not a practice that's taught at all in the West, and it's an amazing practice. It's it's really um, quite unique and offers things that aren't available in the other practices that we've done. And there's there is um, a fruition of that practice that's possible in a shorter amount of time. You know, I, again, we don't know what the standard is because we don't really know that many other people who've done this practice. But um, it's, it's a very, it's a beautiful practice. It's much more like, uh, it's a momentary concentration. It's not a samatha. Concentration, right. Yeah, and um, it doesn't lead to jhana. But it leads to um, well, access concentration, access concentration, and understanding of materiality that's beyond what we normally there, perceive. There's a fork so. in the road at one point towards the end of the practice, and you can go into the materiality, which is the vipassana, or you can you go can into then, then the 32 body take parts. Take a different meditative object and go back into the the samatha. But it's it's. Right. I mean, this is a classic practice that the Buddha did. And we don't practice it at all in the West. It's kind of surprising, really, that we don't. Yeah, that we, well, Asia, the Sayadaw teaches it. I, I don't know if anyone else teaches it or not. It's in the um, Satipatthana Sutta. I mean, as is yeah. most of the Buddhist path. It's, yeah. Is it and it's the ultimate material? It can. That, that's the, there's a little bit of a fork at the very end where one can go into the uh, Vipassana uh, or one can go back into the samatha with it. 
In, the, in this practice you're describing before, almost you get into the group of Kalapas. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, the, the, the Kalapas. And the Kalapas, for don't, those that don't know, are the equivalent of what we call here subatomic particles, where the meditator actually sees the subatomic particles and sees them moving and changing within actual objects. Well, we think that's what it is. We don't that, know that, that's sure. our best. Our best uh, we're 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 making that up as a story, but it's it's the, the basis of all materiality, and then from that um, it goes on to the basis of mentality, and so you're really seeing the the underlying nature of um, of the relative reality beyond normal perception. And you can't quite watch the Matrix movie in exactly the same, the same way yeah, once, once this practice once, is done. Yeah, once you've seen Kalapas, things change. The Matrix so. looks amazingly real at yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's an amazing practice. And I mean, the intention is that um, with the concentration, that practice becomes much more fruitful. And this is why one undertakes the Samatha practice first. But it is available as a, you know, as... Well, as a standalone. A standalone or as... as there are a lot of other ben- health benefits and other mm-hmm. things that can come from that practice, though, that are, are very different than all of the other practices that we do, so... That's why some Buddhists say that the Buddha actually discovered quantum mechanics before <laughs> 25 years ago before the yeah, it's really different, though, seeing it for yourself than seeing it through a microscope or some scientist's description, you know. <laughs> Rocks your world a little differently. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we might talk about that a little bit next time. Yeah, we'll yeah. Anyway, thank you again. Thank you. It's wonderful spending the evening with you. Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.